when they put a curriculum together, like, what should we put on the curriculum? What do we need? And one of the things that was decided is we're going to teach random acts of kindness. We're going to teach generosity. So they put generosity on the curriculum and they give these kids from foster care who've been like, you know, chased down, beaten, put a, they give them all 300 quid and say, right, you've got to find a worthy cause and give it to them. You've got to write down what it is and whoever gets the best one gets voted and they get double. And then we go, and the journey that they go on, these broken, hurt, distrustful young people, the journey they go, it's transformational. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, my fathomless friends and family members, my fellow descendants of the croutons in the primordial soup, and welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast, Education's Critical Friend. My name is James Mannion, and I am delighted that you have joined me for what is truly an incredible episode, if I say so myself. Before I introduce today's guest, it is incumbent upon me to wish you a belated, but nevertheless very heartfelt Happy New Year. We're almost halfway through January, but I think we're still allowed to mention it. I took a much needed break over the Winterville Wonderland period, and I am feeling thoroughly refreshed and ready to take 2023 by the scruff of the neck. I have the feeling that this is going to be a truly extraordinary year. Indeed, it's already shaping up to be an extraordinary year for all kinds of reasons. I hope you had a deeply restful and rejuvenating Christmas and New Year, and that your batteries are fully charged and leaving you feeling ready to knock some sense into this crazy world of ours. What have I been up to, I hear you ask? Well, thank you for asking, I'll tell you. Lots of exciting stuff as it goes. Just before Christmas, my TEDx talk finally came out, entitled How to Change the World, in which I talked about the idea of vertical slice politics, a model for how we could change the way that we do politics so that it would be truly people-powered. And that went really well. It's had lots and lots of views. It's had like 30,000 views on YouTube already. Do take a look at that and, uh, and let me know what you think. Last week, I was at Caterham School in, well, Caterham, training with all of the teachers there on metacognition and self-regulation. In my view, the two most important ideas for educators to be aware of and skilled and adept in. After I'd finished the training there, they were kind enough to allow me to borrow their boardroom, where I recorded an interview with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd for their excellent podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful. That episode, entitled How to Fix Our Education System, came out earlier this week, and there's a link in the show notes in case you'd like to catch up. Then earlier this week, I was in Wales to launch a six-month pilot study of Making Change Stick, a DIY guide to implementing school improvement. And as regular listeners will be aware, this is a training program that I've been developing for the last few years to help teachers and school leaders apply the principles of implementation science to bring about lasting positive change in their schools. This pilot study involves around 10 primary and secondary schools throughout Wales and it's been kindly funded by the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales. 
And so on Wednesday, I got to visit the beautiful Carmarthenshire, where I spent the whole day with this group of about 20 head teachers and senior leaders, introducing them to the key ideas of implementation science and starting off some really exciting planning, which I won't go into now, but I will update you in the weeks and months ahead as this pilot study unfolds. There's also lots more exciting stuff happening, including some sensational episodes of this podcast coming up, by the way. But this will probably do for now by way of an update on my stuff, especially since you didn't actually ask. And so to today's guest, if you've come across Jazz and Far before, you'll know that you are in for an absolute treat. And if you haven't heard Jazz speak before, well, what can I say? I could tell you that Jazz is an award-winning educator, teacher trainer, coach and speaker and soon-to-be author of her first book, but that really doesn't come close to doing her justice. I've really enjoyed listening back to this episode in the edit and it was really noticeable that Jazz made me laugh way more than any previous podcast has ever done. And as I mentioned at one point, she also brought me to the edge of tears on at least five occasions throughout this incredible conversation. But really, I think it's a burning sense of moral purpose combined with an uncanny way with words and the crystal clarity of her thought that makes Jazz such a formidable human being. So whatever you're doing as you listen to this podcast, I would like to invite you to mentally and emotionally strap yourself in. This conversation is quite the roller coaster. So without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent fascinating conversation with fearless chaos navigator, full-fat resilience ninja, and previously underestimated everyday hero, Jazz Ampor Far. I hope you enjoy the show. Jazz Ampor Far, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you. Hello. Hello, welcome, and congratulations are in order. I believe uh, you've been you've been um, awarded some some awards recently. <laughs> tell me, t- tell me about those. Yeah. I am Queen of Speakerland, twenty twenty two. That's not the official title, but that's what I want on the that's in your head. Um, in my head, that's what I want. Yeah, no. So I, I was nominated um, in Speaker of the Year for best live gig and best virtual gig. So best virtual gig, I was highly commended and I got a certificate and I sat down and I'm like, oh my gosh, does this still count as an award? Because I want to be like award. <laughs> and I, my ops manager is going, yeah, of course it is. And then they do um, best live gig and they call out the highly commenders and it's not me. And I'm like, oh, well, it's all right. Next year I can go for it. Then they call out the winner and that is me. So I win that award. So I get my little plaque on the back there. So I'm all those super excited. And then I'm just chatting away because I think that's it. And they announced Speaker of the Year. And there's a beautiful photograph where everybody around me realizes it's me apart from me. I don't I realize. saw that on Twitter. Did you see it? Yeah. And it, it, you know what's great about that is in that moment, I know what I was thinking it was impossible made possible. How can someone, how can it be that I've gone from foster care to Speaker of the Year? That's impossible made possible. And it that was what was going through our mind in that moment. It's amazing. 
Yeah, right. That must have been quite the moment. And this was very recently. It was like a week or two ago. It was actually on my birthday. It was on my birthday. Oh, my goodness. I had like, you know, 20 people there and we were celebrating. We had balloons. And yeah, I mean, next year's birthday is going to be rubbish, quite frankly, because I can't top it. (laughs) I don't know how I top that. Maybe I'll get an Oscar. I don't know. My own Netflix show. That's what happened. Yeah, right. Well, it's, it's clearly in the pipeline. Your your star is is in the ascendant still. And so, right. so what is the Speaker of the Year award, and how is it sort of decided, and what kinds of speaking do you do? Well, the Speaker of the Year award is run by Elliot Kay and the Speaker Awards, and it's um, I think it was supposed to be UK, but it was international because people came from all over, and it's really looking at a criteria in speaking. Um, they have a set of very esteemed judges who measure different. Um, criteria for each thing in pace and timing and audience and everything that you do and then they um, tot it all up and and select the winners and it's open it's running again next year they're actually doing it in July next year so I'm only uh, I've only got my title for six months so I'm being an ambassador I'm being the best ambassador I can in the six months that I have it for People are um, going to be trying to slug it out like you're the you're the prize to be taken down next yeah, time. I'm like, come be... for me. I'm like, come. Do you know what was amazing <laughs> on the night? It's like we're speakers. Yeah, we're all. I mean, there's enough gigs for everybody to go around. But on the night, I barely knew anyone there. Really, I, I in fact, I only really knew my friends there. And there was like I don't know, 200, 300 people there. And um, I went out to get my award, and everyone was standing up. I mean, I was like, why are you? St- I don't know you. You know, and people were coming up to me saying. Um, look, well done, and I'm coming for you. I'm going to watch everything you've done. I'm going to follow you. I'm like, come, come, and come for me. Let's do it because I want the industry raised. So, um, so that's good. And then people went away and they watched my TEDx talk and they watched my keynotes and YouTube and they're like, oh yeah, I can see why she's won. So, so that's yeah, it's cool. And I, I speak about kind of, I call it ambitious resilience because I think you know mental resilience has got a bit of a bad press, but ambitious resilience is something different. I speak about human first leadership which includes a kind of real strong belonging. It's not, it's it's human first, professional second, leadership. I talk about, I suppose it's diversity, but I call it belonging because that's really what we're talking about. And also well-being for idiots. <laughs> I'm counting myself in that, well-being for idiots, because if it was a case of um, accessibility, no, thank you. If it was a case of accessibility, we'd all be as fit as a butcher's dog. You know, we'd all be like size eight and lifting weights and doing meditation. It's not accessibility. With all the information is on YouTube, we still don't take care of ourselves. Not only that, we literally sabotage ourselves. So it's the story that needs changing, not the actual here's what you do, which is why it's called well-being for idiots. Because only an idiot would run themselves into the ground. And that's what I've done. <laughs> and if I'm yeah, not careful, right. I do. So that's kind of, and I'm really interested in like mental health, you know, teenage, young people, um, trying to sort of mentor and bring people up. Everything that was done for me, really, that's what I'm passionate about. Yes, yeah, yeah, right. And 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 as a speaker, you've uh, you've put in your ten thousand hours, as it were. Like you've done oh, yeah, how, how many that. how many keynotes have you done? Would you say <laughs> two thousand nine hundred and six <laughs> keynotes? I mean, that's including summer full days. Some's just a keynote, some's half a day, some's right. a, you know, a wow. series of webinars. But uh, yeah, 2,906. That's, but <laughs> clearly you're keeping count still. Um, yeah. And, and uh, when did that begin for you? How long have you been doing this? Well, it's kind of started the year I started teaching, 1994, um, because I was doing um, way before phonics was a thing. I someone gave me the jolly phonics handbook and said you've got to use this and I'm like well I just do a bit of photocopying 
And then I realized, even though I was kind of my ham-fisted approach at trying to get my kids to blend, they were able to, to do quite a lot. So the next year I moved schools and I went to a year, in year one class and I found my year one kids couldn't do skill-wise where I left my reception kids. So I took my, I looked on the back of the handbook because it was just a handbook back then. And I saw the address was in Chigwell and I was in Clacton-on-Sea. So I got a train. I went to the house. It's this massive house, Chris Jolly, real name. Knocked on the door. I'm like, oi, you should give me some resources for free, mate, because I'm telling everyone about this. And, and I'm, I don't think anyone's having the success my kids are having. So you should give me some free stuff. And he was like, all right. And then he said, do you want to come and speak to some head teachers? And I'm like, um, I thought it was cracking on to me. I'm like, you're old enough to be my granddad. No, I don't <laughs> want to go anywhere with you. <laughs> but he's like, no, it's Friday, half term. He was doing a talk and it was all stats and data. And then I got up. I just showed my kids work. I talked about Gary Bates. I showed them what I was doing. I explained how I made it come alive. And people went bonkers for it. And then he started sending me all over the world. So I had, in my early teaching career, I had a sort of different boyfriends. And I'd be going to Miami with one. Then the next up, could you go to America? It's different boyfriend this time. Oh, Australia needs some. So I literally went all over the Caribbean, everywhere, advising governments, um, um, speaking to whole you know schools. I spoke to like 900 people in Trinidad in a shopping center. Um, <laughs> not just talking about Jolly Phonics, but talking about, phonics in particular because my big thing was I always said the bits that were missing and the bits that weren't very good I've always been very clear about I'm not going to champion a scheme because actually there are some bits so so it started then and and even in my so by my second year of teaching I was doing keynotes outside of school I was doing training I was doing um working on some consultancy work and then when I had my first child I couldn't be the mum I wanted to be and the teacher I wanted to be at the same time. And as it's frowned upon to leave your child in a box outside the church, I decided to take a break from teaching and focus on parenting. And in my maternity leave, I set up my own literacy consultancy. And then I did, you know, conferences and, and training and started going all over schools and, and got work with Jim Rose and brought about track manager research and phonics here. And yeah, so it kind of started there, but it was always... You know, reading, writing and spelling are my tickets out of mindset poverty. Not just like forget physical poverty. You can navigate that and come out of that and things can change. Money will change that. But mindset poverty is a lot more. That's a bigger journey. And literacy was my my ticket out of that. So that I was really passionate about that. But at the time, I wasn't telling anyone about my past because I was so ashamed. I was terrified. What if people found out? I was in a very middle class profession with very middle class people. I was absolutely terrified that people would find out about my past so yeah right I kept it all buried yeah thank you so so I think we'll come on to we'll come on to some of that stuff later mm. so so you, you the thing you're describing is that you're you're talking about a very strong sense of moral purpose this is not just about literacy for the sake of literacy or to to get your reading scores or you're like literacy is your ticket out of you know oh, difficult gosh, circumstances yeah. yeah reading information knowledge choice I mean it, because I could read and write, that's what took me on. Yeah, and and oracy as well. And so I'm interested yeah. to hear more because I do lots of work around oracy. And mm. the thing with oracy is that there's often like this massive psychological barrier to overcome, which is that it's terrifying to stand in front yeah. of a room full yeah. of strangers at first. And even among teachers who you would assume are okay with public speaking, because essentially they do a form of it every day but actually yeah. I do I do these workshops with young people and sometimes we run them with teachers as well and the teachers are often really terrified like as nervous as kids are like hands shaking voice quivering just at having yeah. to address their peers and they're sort of saying things like I'm just going to pretend you're all a bunch of year threes 
and then this will be okay. And so did you ever have that? Like going back to, to you were saying in your first couple of years of teaching, you started doing this um, public speaking. Yeah. Was, was there any stuff that had happened prior to that with regards to public speaking where you sort of did, do you remember feeling terrified or was it was that not such a big deal? No, I, I did drama at school. I mean, I honestly, you know, when speaking and listening sound of gradually disappeared out of the curriculum, where it's never disappeared from is independent school where, you know, yeah, being, right. like, and, and being able to speak your mind is encouraged. And then what you see is a load of people leaving state education with imposter syndrome. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, perhaps we could do something about this. So no, when I was, um, I mean, I, you know, my past helped. I, I navigated like abuse and foster care and stuff. And I was, I was, if I'm honest, I was, and still am probably driven by dissatisfaction it felt unfair. Like when I was eight, I was locked in a cellar and I remember writing in my mind, I started writing a book and it was called the truth according to me because I was unheard the whole time. I was disbelieved, dismissed, unheard. So I was like, do you know what? There's something fundamentally wrong about this is unfair. And I used to, I remember I used to think I wanted to be, in fact, when I was at secondary school, I told one of the teachers I wanted to be a judge because I was really into fairness and the teacher laughed me out of the room. And then when I went to the careers, the careers, um, Officer, he put my details and stuff, you know, marks and that in a computer, and it came out dustbin man. (laughs) Not even even dustbin woman. I'm like, what do I have to do? I have a sex change, I could do it. And he's like, well, if you're going to be rude, I'm like, you've just told me I have to be a man and work on the dustbin. That's the only thing you've come up with. It's like, well, the computer says it's your ideal occupation. I'm like, the computer's wrong. (laughs) I had that. I had that computer guy. My one was prison warden. very very far from the mark there i'm not into prison wardening at all i've I've worked in prisons prison wardens are amazing people that you know that it's talk about meeting people where you are in fact the prison on the back of their badges they've got a thing that says every connection a chance for compassion i mean that's powerful oh nice yeah nice so um so yeah i think i was always very much and what i learned (laughs) the hard way through teenage years uh, and being a young adult, is that shouting at people does not cause change. And I want change. What the shift was, I want change more than I want to be right. I want to be right a lot. That's my husband. But I want change more. <laughs> so that means you've got to meet people where they are. You've got to do my three E's, empathy, engage, and roll. So from, right from the beginning when I started teaching, and even at sixth form college, I was, I was doing drama, I was in plays, and I was involved in, I, can't, I don't know how I did it. It's some sort of feminist I know we sang It's Raining Men and we had flowery dresses on, but it was some sort of feminist poetry um, drama thing. And one of the teachers used to, took us on, used to drive us around. We went on tours to different workplaces delivering this content. So I, I've always kind of been, there's another story. Here's an alternative story to the one. Because I, I hate the fact that I'm the odd one out all the time. It's like, I can't be the only one. I can't be the only one in this. I'm, I can't be wrong. It's not, I'm not wrong. It can't be that every, just, I mean, inherently and intrinsically wrong. That's, that's not fair. So I, I was driven by a lack of, a, a lack, lack of compassion, I think, and, and a dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction became dissatisfaction with people not standing on the truth about themselves and the impact that happens, that can happen when people do stand on the truth about themselves and do know why they're in the room and are connected to their purpose, as opposed to when they're not and how much damage they can do inadvertently. 
Yeah, right. Mm. The truth according to me. I like it. Yeah. So so you have a you have a book coming out. It's not quite called that, is it? Is it is the working title no, Be- Because what, of You, This Is Me? Yeah, it's for teachers. And it's basically saying this is the difference you make, this is the impact you have. You know, if you think you could measure your impact in a set of exam results or phonic screening checks, sit down. Kids don't get their results at 16 and drop dead. If you want to know if you're a success, go and see what your kids are doing when they're 25, when they're 30. That's your legacy. So it's about changing the story. You know, like during lockdown, we are Gavin, I'll see you in court, Williamson. And it's like this toxic leadership of, I will sue you. It's like, oh, I'm fucking <laughs> for the highest good of my kids here. Put me some slack. It, it's kind of that what's missing from that judgmental fight where schools and the government and parents are on three different teams in the World Cup. What's missing is this ability to meet people where they are and hear them. So that's so I just do that. <laughs> that's 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 what I do. But apparently it's you know it's huge because people don't feel seen, heard. They're asked to see and see and hear others, but they're not feeling seen and heard themselves. Yeah, right. And it's something that makes me so mad the way that um, the the whole like prism of of um, of education is filtered through this lens of. Does this make the results go up or not? Oh, it's worse. It's worse than that. So in the beginning, in the beginning, you're kind of like, there's lots of creativity and exploration. Like I'm early years, you know, so that's all what we do. And if you walk into a reception class and say, right, I'm writing a book. I need a great artist. You'll get 30 hands up, right? Half of them. Yeah, I can do it. Can't even draw a slug, but they'll volunteer. (laughs) Then if you go into this year six class in the same school and ask the same question, you won't get the same response. You'll get one kid nudging, getting it. If Brian, he can draw, and Brian's going, no, can't, no, can't. I'm like, what are we doing? What are we, how are we, what are we doing to get to this point? And then you've got teachers who've got like, you know, three kids in a mortgage with two kids in front of them. One of them is causing the massive agitator, is barely there, gets into fights when they are there and is clearly struggling. The other one's going to get straight grades. It's going to just nail it with the nines. And you, in, in, in the past, your kind of points depend on you getting kids through exams. So if you want to look after your own family, who are you going to invest time in? There's the right thing to do, but here's the thing to do. I mean, the whole thing is set up. It's a game. It's the gamification of education. When you can off-roll kids because they're not going to get you grades, when you can take humans and go, it's not even that you don't belong or we can't be bothered. It's just too much work and we don't get our shiny star at the end. We have forgotten how to be human first. We have forgotten that because those kids go on to secondary school, they, they drop out, they go into an offence institute, they end up in prison. When they're in prisons, it's so textbook, boringly normal, their stories. Oh, I was kicked out of school. It's just, it's just like, oh, my gosh, we're creating so much expense and effort later on because we can't bother to do anything now. I mean, don't get me started about this because, I'm, you know, it, it's my thing is I should have been one of those kids. I should have been one. And if it wasn't for five individuals, I would have been one of those kids. I'd be an adult now lost in sexual exploitation and 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 drugs so so forgive me if you know i'm passionate about this but everything i have and everything i am is because individuals stepped up in a system that was broken i want to hear about those those five individuals but but before we do that if i may there's some there's some of some of the language that you use i love the way that you use language and when we were speaking off air air just now this apparently has a name jazzisms (laughs) right said to me have you got a jazz dictionary say the, i'm like no i i haven't so i like your jazzisms i'm like right thank you i didn't know i had any but yeah thank you very much 
Right, so so we're going to call this section the glossary of jazzisms, right? <laughs> and <I'm, laughs> maybe needs a bit of work. And um, so we do the quick fire. So I'm just going to throw you a okay. jazzism, and then you just explain it. Okay, go in for it. Many or as few words as you wish. Ten mm-hmm. percent uh, braver. Yeah, it's women ed. If you you don't have to start a revolution, but if you just are incrementally braver, if you say yes in a place where you haven't said yes before, and then you build on that. That turns you from being driven, from letting fear drive your bus to being the full fat human you're supposed to be. Yeah. So it's just a little bit braver every day. And for some, that's putting their hand up in a meeting. For others, it's, you know, building their own school. It it doesn't matter what it is. It matters that you're 10% braver than you were yesterday. And it's interesting that you, that you say that that's connected to women ed because a danger of, uh, of you know, saying some sweeping generalisation. There does seem to be a thing, I've heard many women say this, that they they they, they feel that hesitance, that the, the sort of the momentary pause before they put their hand up, that they, it's not something that they naturally do in the way that men do, that the way that men just sort of... I think we are generally as a society trained to, you know, if you're a pioneer type of person and you're a man, that kind of fits our subconscious stereotype of what men in business or men in education, men in leadership should be. If you're a pioneer type person, you're a woman, you know, there's different adjectives used for you. You're bossy, you you know, you're a bit bit aggressive, especially if you're brown as well. So there's all these adjectives that if I was a white male, none of those adjectives would be used to describe me. So I think people, you know, people, basically people, people don't want trouble. They just want a quiet life. They just want to do their best. And show up and spend time with their family. Nobody wants a fight. So a lot of the time, subconsciously, we start turning the volume down on ourselves. But that's why I talk about another jazzism being full fat you. Like not half, half semi-skimmed, not some watered-down oat milk version, although that's that is the milk I drink. But <laughs> full fat jazz. That's what I want to be. Right. I like it. Okay, so you squeezed in another jazzism there. Uh, <laughs> the, ne- the next one is resilience ninja. Yes. That was actually given to me by a six-year-old um, when I was, I'd done a talk, I'd done some work with a school, I'd spoken to the staff and uh, I'd shared some of my story. And he said, you're like a, a ninja, like a resilience ninja. And I'm like, I am putting that on my business card. So I did. <laughs> and, and also it's this thing of resilience. People think it's submission or stiff upper lip. No, resilience is shortening the time between when you are on the floor and you get back up again. So for me, it used to be years. And then it was months and then it was weeks and then it was days and then it was hours. I can do it in minutes and I'm aiming for seconds. That's the difference between being knocked out. Like I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I've had it to going, you know what? No, the pen is in my hand that time. And it's getting that as short as possible. And that's what resilience is. It's reframing. Mm, Nice. Thank you. Chaos navigator. Yeah. So there's two types of humans. Two. Ty- I, I did this for kids. There's two types of kids in your class, right? There's chaos navigators and order navigators. Order navigators, school is designed for these kids. My kids are order navigators. They're cuss-cussy, middle-class, namby-pamby kids. That's unfair. They're great humans. But, you know, they come <laughs> home. They know that they've got food. They know someone is waiting for them. They know that they'll be fed. They know that they're loved. There's, the bed is made. There's a washing machine. They're sent to school with everything they need and encouragement. They're ready for a challenge. Whereas chaos navigators might not have anything to eat. They might not speak the language. They might have their sister's boyfriend pressuring them to sell drugs at school. They don't have a blazer. And when they do turn up at school, it's a freaking miracle. But the first minute they get there, they're late. They're not wearing the right clothes. They get told to take their hood down. They get shouted at. They get told off. They get the same look of disgust and disappointment they get from outside of school. And it's like, do you know what? There's no point. 
There's no point. What's the point in this? So chaos navigators, school is not designed for them. They need translation. They need someone to meet them where they are rather than saying, well, you just student up and get in the game. That's what was my experience. I had to follow the rules that I didn't even know. Like I couldn't use a knife and fork when I started secondary school because we were feral. So, but I was punished for my own disadvantage from the get-go. Like I spat on the floor because where I came from, spitting on the floor is punctuation. But I was hoiked up, uh, you know, how dare you deface the quadrangle? I'm like, what does deface mean? <laughs> what the hell's a quadrangle? And what did I do? <laughs> so from the, from the beginning, I was wrong. I was just wrong all the time. I was right. in a state of wrongness. And, and that is where chaos navigators live. Bear in mind, and this used, this especially annoyed me, when we started talking about resilience, I'm like people you'd write things down they'd say I'm, I'm you know I've got a problem with authority and I'm I'm a vulnerable child I used to hate that I'm like vulnerable I was more resilient at eight years old than you're ever going to be that's not an accurate adjective and the other one was challenging behavior like I'm lying awake at night thinking of ways to annoy adults I'm lying awake at night trying to work out how I'm going to survive what I'm going to eat how I'm going to steal food to feed my brothers I'm sorry, but the teachers aren't that important to me at that stage when I'm lying awake in bed. But it, distress behavior, that's entirely accurate. But change a bit. It was just like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong all the time. Mm. And so a chaos navigator has to navigate that and learn the bus stop method for long division. And I just think it would be kinder if we met them where they were. Like when yeah. I started teaching, I had biscuits in my cupboard because I knew there'd be kids coming in without eating anything. And why would you try and teach them the bus stop method for long division when they haven't had a biscuit? That's just cruel. So I'm like, I want biscuits in my cupboard. So that's what I did. And I ran out every week, you know, because people were hungry. So yeah. it, was, it was coming, I'm coming from a different position. And we're all chaos navigators at some point. You, your partner dies, you, your, your mum's ill, you're using a food bank. We've all got to navigate stuff. But what we do is we try and keep it in and put on a, a great show. And I'm like, why don't we just be human? It's, it's too much to ask. To ask yeah. people to put out for kids while they're breaking inside themselves. And so uh, things at the moment, just to sort of to expand on this point a little bit, because in recent years, there seems to be this, there's been this trend towards much more order in schools, much more control, much stricter <laughs> rules, much more yeah. like, um, like no excuses, sort of, um, or zero tolerance zero type tolerance, yeah. uh, approaches to behavior management. Kids getting sent home for having the no spare pen or the wrong colored socks on. At my nephew's school, he's got to have his name embroidered in his socks. And if, the, if okay. that isn't, you know, for, who's doing that for him then? Does everyone does that? Do they give everyone a professional embroiderer as well? <laughs> but hopefully, yeah, no. I mean, you know, if you like for me, wait, I didn't have. I remember one teacher saying, under your nails is dirty. When your parents, when your mum puts you to bed tonight and reads you a story, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, what are you on? There's no way I'd let my mum, if she comes near me, I'm I'm terrified. She's going to hurt me. What are you talking about? You know, it was this whole thing of like, it's like you judge the kids on stuff they can do. Like in one of the schools I worked with, they were giving out, I was in an assembly and they were giving out Easter eggs at Easter for people who had 100% attendance. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't, we didn't eat, right? We were poor and, and our parents spent all their money on booze. If And then when you're six, you don't really decide whether you get to school or not on your own. That is someone else's decision. I understand that schools are under pressure for attendance, but don't pass that pressure onto the kids. If you want to reward anyone, reward the parents. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I'd have been sitting there looking at that thinking, I'd kill for an Easter egg and there's no chance I can get it. Because at six years old, I'm being held accountable for my own disadvantage. 
Do you know mm. what I mean? So look, I'm not, I, I know I did a talk once and somebody said, I'm not here to love the kids. I'm here to teach them. Um, I'm here to deliver tough love. And I could see everyone behind him bristling. He was on the front row. And I said, you know, because my thing is meet people where they are. That includes people who are starkly different to me or I'm different to. So I'm like, I understand what you're saying. And I think tough love can work when there's regular love first. And if there's no regular love at home, tough love is just bullying. Right. Which is, which I think, I think zero tolerance is fantastic when everyone is at the starting point where they know they're safe and there's psychological safety in their life. And they know that they're safe and they know that they're well and they know that they're seen. That's a great time for tough love. That's a great time for zero tolerance. But I, I just, I just, I just, we're going to look back on this like we look back on lead in pencils. We're going to look back and go, oh yeah, that kid whose mum died of a heroin overdose at Christmas and he's living with his alcoholic granddad and he doesn't eat anything apart from free school meal. And he, he's, he's in danger of being abused. But you know, he didn't come with a pencil. And then he didn't turn up for detention, so we're going to exclude him. I just think, it's just, I, I just, I, you know, you're as strong as you treat the weakest in your society. And I, I'm not, my thing is, I know people think, oh, it's namby-pamby. And it's like, yeah, fine. But I, I don't see that this is a competition to weed out the strong, you know, and just say to the ones who we can't be bothered with, yeah, don't come in. But we are literally, that's what we're doing. <laughs> we're literally... Separating. It is a stupidly impossible job to be a leader of a school. It's a stupidly impossible job to be a teacher. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't have a washing machine in school and be washing kids' clothes. You shouldn't be coaching parents on how to navigate. But when are you trained for that? I spent too long for, well, I didn't spend enough time in the library, but if I'd done the work I was given, I'd spent too long in my head in a Piaget textbook, love. Never mind sorting out. And yet, that's in some places how you survive. And I think that needs acknowledging. You know, I, I I think this this thing of equality without equity is just I I don't understand how it works. And and yeah. and, and kids leave if you get these kids right and they leave school with like straight you know brilliant grades set a nine degree, but they've got no self esteem and no self worth and they're terrified of what other people think of them and they feel like an imposter. Have we actually won anything? Have we actually won? Do we want to be right or do we want change? And I just think that's the question. That's that's the question. It's an excellent question. And it's and it's something that we don't ask often enough that people talk about the forgotten third, the, the one in three school leavers who are essentially branded a failure by the by the sort of mandatory assessment system. But lots of the kids who are not in that forgotten third are also being failed by the system because they're not developing. It, it sort of de develops you in, in quite a lopsided way, the school system. It rewards certain things and and suppresses other things. And so people often you know, do really well in school. They go to a top university and end up having a nervous breakdown and they can't hold down a relationship because they haven't developed you know other aspects of their of their character. But that's what we're not measuring that, are we? We're not saying that's what yeah. success. What success looks like is being academic. Exactly, that's what success looks like. It comes back to this thing we were talking about earlier about like the fact that everything's measured through this prism of does mm. this improve exam results? And there's just so much more to it than that. And to come back to what you were just talking about a moment ago about about kids being excluded for minor infractions of the 
uniform policy or whatever. It's not even that. I think that, you know, exclusions gets a lot of heat, as you've probably noticed. There's lots of friction and people get very agitated and animated about that issue on both sides. Um, but increasingly, kids are voting with their own feet. They're not waiting to be excluded. There's yeah. a book coming out soon called Square Pegs, and I've been working with, with that organisation, Square Peg, as an organisation for, for the last few years um, in various ways. And... Um, and, you know, the numbers are unbelievable. There's like one in nine kids is a persistent absentee from school now. One in nine, there's over a million in this country. And that's, you know, like, so to be a persistent absentee, you only have to have missed 10% of school, which might not sound like that much, but 10% yeah. is is um, is a big chunk of time. It's four weeks across the school year, 20 yeah. days. And if you, and if you're off for 20, if you're off for an additional 20 days on top of all the holidays you get, you'll be getting hassled from that school. You'll be, parents will be threatened with fines. There are parents who are threatened and some of them, some of them end up with custodial sentences for their kids not attending school. And that's a really unpleasant situation to be in. But, over a million kids, one in nine, are choosing that over sticking on a blazer and a tie and going and sitting at the back of a classroom. And I think that that should tell us something very important about those young people's experience of school, that they would rather put up with that level of hassle and grief and, and friction and arguments and what have you That's at home. That's less stress than the yeah, other. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. I think as well that they're, like, I think Gen Z, I'm a huge fan of Gen Z, oh, it's the first time that, the young generation know more than the old generation. I've noticed like brought, that. Isn't it? They're brought up in the everything at your fingertips kind of world. And in the difference to millennials where people, like I'm Generation X, where we would say millennials, they're a bit entitled. Oh, yeah, because we gave them everything immediately. And then we're moaning when they can't stick a job more than two weeks because they don't feel they're having an impact. Gen Z are much more, they've got boundaries, you know? They're like, they're like give me a purpose. You want me to work for you and you think you're going to pay me and I'm going to be eternally grateful. Give me a shared purpose. Without that purpose, if this is just an exchange of time for money. I mean, that's amazing. So if you look at what's going to come next, I, I do think there's going to be this inherent, um, it's it's a partnership, it's an engagement. It's It goes further than psychological safety. It's a, because, you know, if, if what school for, if it's not preparing them for adulthood, a large proportion of which will be work, will be some form of business or work or connection or community or something. You know, and I and I think when you look at what the the industry of employment is asking for, and their chief complaints about school, one of them being, you know, quotes from inspector calls isn't helping in any way. <laughs> but what they're asking for um, is something totally different. If you ask parents, what do you what 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 do you want your kids to know? What do you want your kids to who do you want them to be? And then what do they get taught in school? Two different things. And that's where I know we talked about this off camera, but first star, that when they put a curriculum together, like, what should we put on the curriculum? What do we need? And one of the things that was decided is we're going to teach random acts of kindness. We're going to teach generosity. So they put generosity on the curriculum and they give these kids from foster care who've been like, you know, chased down, beaten, put uh, they give them all 300 quid and say, right, you've got to find a worthy cause and give it to them. You've got to write down what it is, and whoever gets the best one gets voted and they get double. And then we go, and the journey that they go on, these broken, hurt, distrustful young people, the journey they go, it's transformational. Mm. It's transformational. So I, I think, you know, look, if we were starting from scratch, what would we do? What, what would we do? 
what wouldn't we do is a good place. When I was doing literacy, I'd be like, if SPAG doesn't exist, what would you teach? And actually, we teach the same thing, but we do more freedom over writing, expression, we're bringing speaking and listening, and we'd probably stop banging on about semicolons. But that's it. You know, we, we do more or less the same. So how do we continue? Because I know that when you leave primary and go into secondary, you're de-skilled immediately in literacy. All those skills that you get really good at in years that you're never asked to use them again. Yeah. It's like if you could do a PE sentence and use a connective correctly, you're off. You know, it, it's just like it's you feel cheated all the time. No wonder people vote with their feet, especially when success, success is measured at so high. Like I remember thinking, well, in our school is talking about resilience. I remember thinking, this is one subject I can nail. And yet, no, because resilience was getting an extra two marks in a geography test. It wasn't turning up at school when there was no one in the house to get you up or get you ready. That wasn't, that didn't count. So yes. it was just constantly this, everything I'm good at doesn't count for anything. And everything that counts for something I'm no good at. So why do I even bother coming? Like, you don't want me here. I don't want to be here. Let's just make it easy on everyone. You mm. know? Yeah. It's really interesting speaking with you because, you know, I, sp I talk to educators a lot all the time and we get really bogged down in the weeds of things, but you've got such a sort of a crystal clear vision and a sort of a, like a very strong sense of moral purpose. And it just shines through in what you, in what you. Oh, thank you. I think some people would call it naive, um, which is good. I, Cause I didn't have a childhood, so I'm having it now. It's never too late for a happy childhood. <laughs> I think we all deserve to be go through naivety until we're proven wrong. And uh, I've been proven wrong yet. Like one of my things is take your, this is how you improve behavior straight away. I hate the term managing behavior. It reminds me of training chimps, you know, like, or training. I've got, a, uh, I foster medical detection dogs. I manage his training and behavior. You know, it's like, he's a dog and he does, I, 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 he'll go for a wee when I tell him to go for a wee. Like, I don't want my kids to be that regimented. But anyway, so I said, right, everyone's got a behavior policy. So let's print it off. It off, put it there, all 16 tomes of it. Take the first page which says behavior policy, rip it up, type out another page which says relationship policy, and put it on the top. And then let the kids rewrite it for you because behavior policy says, listen, you're going to do this or you're going to be punished. This is what I expect. A relationship policy says, I am going to fight for your highest good and believe in you even when it hurts. And in return, you're going to believe in yourself. Now, which one would you rather labor under? as a teacher or a student. Mm. So it is, it's like this fight, it's the wind and the sun. You know, I'm a reception teacher. It's the, you know, the wind and the sun, I'd have bet. The wind said, I bet I can get that guy to take his coat off. And the sun's like, no, we don't need to bet. Let's just chill because the sun's all chill. The wind's like, no, come on, I'm going to beat you. So the wind blows and the man pulls his coat tight and the wind blows and the man's like, oh, and his hat comes off. He grabs his hat and, goes, and then the wind collapses, exhausted and goes, oh, he'll never do it. It's your go. And the sun goes, oh, is it my turn? And the man goes, oh, it's a bit hot, and takes his coat off. <laughs> We're the wind. We need to be more sun. Love it. Love it. Right. We're still only halfway through our jazzisms. Let's do some more. Okay, uh, do some more. Positive disruptor. I think we're seeing that why you why you adhere to this to this label. Yeah. Where, where does this one come from? Because on my report, I always got disruptive influence, disruption, disruptive. So I went, yeah, okay, that's my gift, but I'm going to make it positive. <laughs> so I became a pot. So I interrupt people's limiting mindsets and negative stories and remind them that a past is not a script for their future. And I do it by this, by being me. Like this is who I am the whole time. So I do it by <coughs> showing what's possible. And uh, asking people to get curious, swap fear for curiosity. 
So a positive disruptor is someone who doesn't have any answers, but asks, you know, good questions and asks it with a smile and is very endearing and genuinely cares. And that that tends to get people, people are only like one sandwich away from joining a revolution at any minute, in my experience. If you meet them where they are and give them a tantalizing proposition, they're like, let's so <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> I've, I've noticed that as well recently. All right, the next one, uh, Everyday Hero. Ah, so this is basically you. This is people who use the word just to describe themselves. I'm just a mum, I'm just a TA, I'm just a teacher, I'm just a midday supervisor, I'm just a Secretary of State for Education. <laughs> that word just is a, is a limiter and it's not true because the, the big difference for me wasn't made by some sweeping grand jester. It wasn't Miss Honey taking me home and looking after me. It was the tiniest small actions of people deciding to value me instead of rescue me. And those tiny small actions all amount to huge trajectory interruption and huge transformation. And these are people who wouldn't describe themselves as anything other than ordinary, but for me are literally everyday heroes. They show up, stand shoulder to shoulder every day. That's what they do. And when they're not there, they're thinking of you and carrying you in their heart. Well, that I'm afraid is the biggest form of service in my book. And that's why my five teachers were everyday heroes. Mm, yeah nice thank you i'm definitely going to come back to those five people um the next one is previously underestimated <laughs> so in um in the the forgotten third or the report um so i was in the school once and they said i did my talk and they said oh can you help us it was a conference can you help us we've got this great um like initiative for our vulnerable children their families and you know we we put on workshops and we've got food bank we put this on. nobody comes what can we do and I said, what's it called? And they said, it's called the Vulnerable Children and Their Family, Disadvantaged Families Fund. And I'm like, that's why nobody comes. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to write anything down about my kids that I won't be prepared to say it to their face, right? So I'm not going to say to Samia, yeah, seeing as you're disadvantaged and, and, and vulnerable, you can go in yellow group. I'm not going to say anything to them. I wouldn't want them seen wearing on a t-shirt. So I wouldn't want disadvantaged. T-shirt with disadvantaged on it. What? And I've said to people, <laughs> "Why do you call the kids who aren't disadvantaged?" And I've literally had people go, "Um, um, the, the non-disadvantaged." I'm like, "Do you though? Is that what you call them?" And people go, "The normal ones." I'm like, "Let's get curious about that." Even <laughs> way can we just sit down for a minute and have a think about this? Disadvantage is not helpful. It's not helpful. And also, that's my community you're talking about. I come from a very proud working white working class community. Calling us disadvantaged is not helpful. So for me, I'm like, what would I be? What would? And then they go, well, what can we use? I'm like, well, you can, why don't you make a few more mistakes? You've made one. Why don't you just try some words on? And people will say, people aren't bothered what we use. It's like, it's not about them. It's not about the disadvantage. It's about you and your mindset when you use that term. So the term that I've come up with, well, I've got two. One is children from under-resourced communities. That's, you know, we live, our school is in an under-resourced community. That's mm. accurate. It's not judgmental. It's got no bad taste to it. It's just a fact. And then for me, the T-shirt that I have, because all these jazzisms are on T-shirts, the T-shirt I have, the phrase I use is previously underestimated, which I think is a beautiful way of describing, because, like, there's two types of kids that don't succeed, isn't there? There's there's ones that have a learning difficulty and you've got to navigate a different way around. There's ones that, you know, are, are struggling in some way. And then there's... Uh, so let's call it SEN. It's what you said when I was doing literature. It says SEN, and then there's ABT. 
and SEN have a specific need that you need to navigate and meet them where they are. ABT stands for ain't been taught, and that's our fault. It's not their fault. That's our fault. So if we actually look at the words we use, and instead of using words that put a mark on people and actually say, you know, school sending letters out for our vulnerable families, come and get the workbooks from the thing. Can we stop? I'd just be proud of that. I'm vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. I can't do anything for myself. No, for our previously underestimated families, because we are never going to underestimate you. I'll tell you why. Because we believe in you. It's it's witness. It's witness all the time. Instead of doing things to others, mm. or for, it's witness is powerful. So I, that, I, I'm a governor at a local secondary school, and that's what I do. I read their letters and go, let's put witness in this. Instead of using this phrase, we can use this phrase. You know, it's just, instead of sponsor a student, we could have grow a future leader. You know, it's it's just turning words so that we're actually living inside our own integrity. So yeah, previously right. underestimated is what I is what I am. I am previously underestimated. I and haven't actually, I ever get, really gone. You know, no, I get quite I, I quite like it when people underestimate me because I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. They're going to go. You know what? I underestimated you, and I'm going to go. I know it's happened before. <laughs> You're not the first, so yeah. There's quite a few new things in there for me. One being that I hadn't ever thought of the word disadvantage as being a form of othering. Well, how do you like it? If that was, it's if, just sort of. It's just such a commonly not used. Nice. Yeah, but you, it's not nice. It's no, not no, it's it's not. And and most teachers. I don't come from disadvantage or certainly aren't disadvantaged by the time they're working as a professional mm. graduate. Yeah. And so it is sort of a form of othering. And and then the, the, the word withing that you were using, like withness, as, a, as, a, yeah, as an opposite, as an opposite to othering that withness. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mark Finnis. I mean, for me, like, connection is a, is the antidote to depression. It's the antidote to addiction. It's the antidote yeah. to othering. So withness is like, how do we do withness? You know, like the first time parents hear from a school, secondary in particular, is when something's gone wrong. I'm like, this is be- If you were a business, right, you'd have no clients because what you're supposed to do is connect with them. And also you've got a lot to offer. You know how teenagers work. It might be their first child. You can actually take them. You, you should make a promise in year seven to say, we will fight for the highest good of your child and we will get them through and they will become the best person version of themselves at 16. And then at 16, you have this the meeting again and you say, we did what we said we'd do. I mean, you, you know, hold yourselves to a higher standard than hopefully we'll try and get a few GCSEs. Who's but I mean, that's, you're a school. That the clue's in the title. You're supposed to be academic. You're supposed to be aiming for academic excellence. Where's the unique DNA? That's why the Ofsted banners wind me up. Because it's like that's not the truth about you. Tell the truth. Right. I'm going to come on to Ofsted banners um in a minute. But next and next actually follows nicely from that last one. Swag. Yeah, swag. Get some swag, Maureen. So swag <laughs> is a seriously wild, audacious goal. And I ask leaders, head teachers, I love to, because you know what? No one's looking after the leaders. They're looking after everyone else, right? And I go to head teachers' events and I just see a group of exhausted, like broken people. And I'm like, how can I? That's what I do before I go on stage this time. I want to, I am going to show up for you. I am going to. I'm going to be full fat jazz. I'm not going to worry about what if my slides don't work. That's selfish. That's me thinking about me. You've put, you know, your school's burning down while you're not here. You've left your emails. They're building up. Your kids are in childcare. I am going to show up for you in a way that no one else has done in order that you would be filled and you will go away and be overflowing for others in your leadership. So, so I kind of feel like 
you know, it's back to witness, I guess. It's back to witness. It's showing up for people is so important. And I don't, I, I just, how do you, why would you choose to be a leader in school in this? What, what, who hurt you that you would want to do that? Do you know what I mean? It's a crazy job. It's insane. It's, it's insane. Yeah, the mental health of, of teachers, people yeah. often talk about mental health of kids, but mental health of teachers is not in good shape. And school leaders, even worse from the, yeah. from the data that I've seen. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, why would you, why would you choose that? And, and why, and you know, is it any surprise that so many, so many people are voting with their feet on the teaching side of the fence as well, right? Like the teacher retention rates are not looking too I mean, healthy. I always, I always encourage people to try a different school before they leave teaching because people get stuck on this is how it is. Yeah. And there are some, you know, some like there's toxic leadership. I know that, but, but there's a time, there's a time for everything. There's a time to stay. There's a time to leave. When I was, I was in an independent school when I got pregnant with Trin, Catholic independent school. And when I, and granted, I hadn't been there long and I'd gotten pregnant. And um, I went to tell the head and she said, would you consider having an abortion? And I was like, um, I'll ask Ed. I was like, what am I? What? Yeah. yeah. And I remember coming up and the, the leadership in this school, it was just, it was tantamount to emotional abuse. And and because I was pregnant and I was due bad planning in the conception stages due in August. No, you could tell when it's an, it's not planned, isn't it? When you're like, we want to have a baby that was born in September or October, November, because that's when your teacher's kids are going to be born, uh, autumn term. And I had a baby on the 26th of August. Oh. Anyway, so so I, I remember kind of going back thinking, what am I even? No, oh my gosh, you know, what am I even doing it? But you got so wrapped up in it that it seemed a normal thing for someone to ask you. So, so there's a time, and I, I stayed until my maternity leave. And then once I left, I was like out of that. I'm like, I am never going back to that. Never. Yeah, right. You know? But um God, that's but, appalling. That's it is appalling, but it's not the worst I've heard. It's not the worst I've heard. And I think the thing is, you know, it's like you keep a rat in a cage, you poke it with a stick, you let it out, probably gonna bite you. Probably gonna bite you. And that's the government have done that to leaders and then leaders try their best until they're overwhelmed. And then mm -hmm. inadvertently, they end up doing it to teachers and then teachers are do it to their family. And that's why my husband hated my job. He's like, I hate your job because it takes the best of you and you give me whatever's left, which is not a lot. Also, you talk to me like I'm five, which I find particularly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. The language of choice and all that. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to differentiate. It's really hard job because it is so much like like when you go to another job, you can sort of sense that like you step into a role of a tax accountant or whatever it might be that you do. But when you're a teacher, like your ego, like I mean that in the sort of in a deep psychological sense, you are absolutely on the front line. And when when you're having difficulties, when you're having a difficult conversation, it's not just you as this as this, this you know function of a yeah. professional yeah. sort of service. Like it's you as a human being and why, your value why, and your esteem in the eyes of others yeah. is on the line. But that's why boundaries one, and that's why being human first is so powerful. Because it's like we almost think we've got to be human or professional, and professional means I've been looking at schools. My youngest is going to school; he's uh, on the spectrum, um, and I, I look at schools according to their pastoral care. Because I don't, you're all going to be doing the same thing, right? You're going to be trying to get them to get GCSEs, so I don't need to worry about that. I'm not going to look at results. It's like, are you doing your job? Are you confident in your staff? Great. What else you got? So I take him to this one school, and um, just in the demeanor, you know, you, you can tell that things are all right when they're all right. But if things are going wrong, 
then we will come down very hard and they'll immediately be. And I'm like, do you know what? It's just, it's, I'm, I'm, I am like the best parent. You want my kid in your school because I'm going to, I've, in every school, my kid, I've got three kids and in every school they've been in, I have supported them. I do photos for them. I turn up. I've done written literacy schemes for them when I was working on letters and styles. I mean, I, I, I go to all the meetings. I do everything. I will champion them in the WhatsApp groups. I cut every gossip off at the knees. I mean, you want me as a parent in your school. And you want to have me support and challenge you. You want to grow as a school. So you don't want you don't want to kind of only have me saying nice things about you. You want me to say, hey, you know what I've noticed in my experience of being in a different school every day? Here's a quick and easy way of doing something that has a huge impact on getting parents on side. Here's a quick mm. and easy way of doing something that has a huge impact on how lunchtime is run. You know, it's like, why would you shut that door down and say, we will do this? It's like there's a square. Nadia Bowles Weber, right, is this six foot two Lutheran um, priest. Are they priests? Covered in tattoos, swears like a trooper, used to be a drug addict. She's flying over. She, she told this story in a book I read. She's flying over America and there are square fields, right? Square fields. But the irrigation is growing in a circle because the irrigation is in the center. So a circle within that square gets irrigated, mm. right? But there are corners in the square that don't get irrigated and don't grow. And I feel like our education system, the way we work as schools, is we are functioning really well for those people in that circle in the center, mm, which wow. is very tiny. But a lot of humans are in the corners. And that then goes into society when they're just in a bigger square, bigger corner, less of us in the circle. So mm. if you're white and male and middle class and straight and cisgendered and you've got some exam results and you've got yourself a job and you can sit in the circle. But everyone, there's layers going out, you know, there's layers. And then we end up in the corners. I'm interested in the creativity in the corners. I'm really interested in the creativity in the corners. So that's, that's. I, th I think if we could look at something allowing for left field thinking it would make a big difference yes yeah i like that a lot wow what a brilliant visual metaphor incredible mm. um right offset banners um <laughs> what's going on with Ofsted so whenever banners? i see an offset banner which are less frequent now i always think wtf which stands for who's that for who's that for is it for the teachers so when they come in, we're good. Offset says we're good. And you go, yes, because we know it costs you. Is it for the parents? So they could, well, it's not because there's a roaring trade in Ofsted says our school is good, but not so much in Ofsted says our school requires improvement is a bit crap. Nobody buys those banners, do they? They're in the warehouse tiled up. No one wants that. So, so it's not really for the parents. Is it for the kids? Ofsted said our school is good. Is it for them? Who is it for? Because I'll tell you who it has no impact on most people. I mean, it's not, what are you celebrating? You're saying some guy came along in a suit that didn't fit him very well, and he said, we tick nearly all the boxes. Woo! You're celebrating that. You're ce After everything you pour of your life into this school, you're going to celebrate you nearly tick the box, just like every other school. Come on. So I want banners of truth outside schools. How about you just tell the truth? Like, put a banner up that says, the moment you set in this school, you are valued. Put a banner up that says, my staff fight incredibly hard for your child's future. Put a banner up that says, we love our kids. Yes, secondary. I use the L word. We love our kids. Just tell the truth. Just tell. Yeah. The Stop letting someone else write your story of excellence and the write it yourself. That is the example we should be showing to our kids. Isn't it? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I'm just like, come on, guys. That's lazy. 
be better. You, you're better than this. You deserve better than this. So sticking up a banner outside school. Oh, come on. Write down what some of the parents, pull some comments off. Put a blank piece of paper and let people write on it. And then answer that. Like when during lockdown was on, I put a big card outside my house. And it said, after this is over, I'm looking forward to, and then I left loads of like felt tips out there and got people to write on it. And kids were put, you know, playing with my friends, going swimming. The postman put less parcels. Everybody <laughs> 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 was delivering stuff. So, like, you know, let's, let's tell the truth. It's interesting, involved. isn't it? I mean, I'm guessing that the reason that those banners exist is is aimed at prospective parents who are sort of who are like going to going to use an Ofsted rating as a shorthand for like whether through. that's a school. Follow, follow that through, then. Yeah, so, what on. sort of parents are going to look at? Or well, first of all, you don't have that much choice. I know we say you do, but if you're out of catchment, good luck. So, follow that through. Say anyone can come, and the what sort of parents are going to see a good Ofsted and then put their kids there. Is it going to be parents who spend a lot of time investing in their children? Is it going to be parents fighting to get through the day and most of the time not knowing how they're going to survive, let alone sorting out their own kids? What sort of parents going to take time to read the old study voice? More likely, I'm generalising. So we have a school full of what? Kids who are doing well. So what does that mean? That means that our grades go up and we do really well. It's the equivalent to us saying we want 50% of kids who've got this grade at this stage. So then we get really good at being academic. That's great. And we do well. But a school mm. down the road has got the kids that didn't get into your school. And it's literally saying in an estate, the kids that live on this side and the kids that live on this side are getting different experiences. Yeah, I is, can see it's divisive, but I can, like, I can also see that it's the game that the, it's the game that schools are ah, playing where where they are yeah, sort of in, they're, they're in competition for places. Well, yeah, their, but, their funding model depends on how many kids they get, putting them down as a first well, choice and so on. You see, the game is set up for them to lose, and in that situation, you don't play that game. You move the goalposts and play a game that you can actually win at, because I, everyone is doing the same, competing on the same on price on good. Yeah. What if you competed on relationships? What if you competed on community? What if you competed on something different? This is what all great, this is, I'm in the world of business and marketing. This is what marketeers do. They make a connection beyond, here's a transaction of time for money, kids for education. Mm -hmm. So what if we thought outside the box? What if we didn't let fear, because it's not in, in competition, it's the fear of not doing very well. People are driven by fear and that is no way to control a society. Unless, yeah. you know, we want a whole matrix red blue blue pill situation you know it's like fear should not be your driver i agree that's a life half lived isn't it that's a life half lived have you come across the the idea of a panopticon before oh no that's a new word panopticon. so panopticon yeah it's a really powerful metaphor for so it was, it was a type of prison that was that was invented by a guy called jeremy bentham hundreds of years ago and yeah. they never built one in this country, but I believe that panopticons have been built in other countries. I think there might be one in Colombia or something like that. Anyway, so it's designed to be a prison where the guard, okay, it's sort of like a big sort of octagonal type structure, and the guard can stand in his little guard tower and can see into everybody's cells, but the prisoners can't see whether the guard is in his tower or not. And so it's and so, but all the all the prisoners behave as though they're being observed all the time, even when they're not. And it seems to me that that's oh, a yeah, a yeah. really powerful metaphor for how Ofsted 
works right and why it is that teachers have been like grading each other for example constantly inspecting each other and grading each other for the last few years and and kicking teachers out if they don't meet some grade and we know that grading is ludicrous like you can't do it reliably just from a just from a social science point of view you just you can't you can't judge somebody's lesson on a four-point scale in a reliable way because it's, it's just it's a multivariate thing and you try to fit it into a four-point scale um, and but that's what's happening, and and likewise with with you know schools putting banners outside. It's it's examples of, of that that sort of they've been captured by the mental model of Ofsted, and so that they become the enforcers of their own prison, right? And Ofsted only come around yeah. once every four years, but for all of the intervening time, the the way that the game is is set up is such that you know teachers and school leaders are sort of doing it to themselves. I mean, the the. How I approached Ofsted when I was in the classroom, um, I had year one kids in my first Ofsted, I think. I went through four in my first four years, which was incredibly lucky, supply teaching and moving around helping out. Mm. Anyway, so I would say to my kids, um, you know, we'd have jobs and someone would be welcomer for anyone who isn't part of school. If they come in, then you welcome them into the class. And I gave them a script and they learned it and we all practiced it. And the script was, welcome to our class. Uh, we hope you enjoy your time here. Here's what we're learning today, in brackets, show books. And sometimes they would say, here's what we're learning today, show books. Oh, no, show books. <laughs> um, here's what, my name is, insert name here. Here's what we're learning today. Here's what we were doing before. So you can see what we've built on. And here is where we're kicking it out of the park in challenge, in feedback. In you know. And I literally went through the things that Ofsted are measuring. And they ended with, we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Because I was in schools all the time, people going, oh, I hope we get a nice Ofsted. But what are you hoping for? Hope's not a strategy. No, 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 no. How lucky Ofsted are to get to come and see the areas that I shine. How lucky are they? I welcome that. I welcome that. I used to video myself all the time and give it to all the teachers. They critique me. Show me how I can be better. I've only been doing this two years. I want a shortcut success. Tell me where I'm, I'm, I could improve. So my kids would come in and I'd be like, I know where I'm outstanding because I've read the criteria. It's not a secret, is it? They put it on the website. I know where I'm good and I know where I require improvement and I'm looking for help with that. So if you've got something useful to say, please sit down with me. If all you're going to do is tell me what I already know, well, I'm sorry, love, but this job is very time rich. <laughs> so send me an email. Yeah, send me an email, <laughs> which I will never read. So instead of fear, <laughs> I just made the shift of let's embrace it. And, and I'll tell you what was interesting. There was a couple of times that my kids were going, um, they'd go, and I say, when you when they first come in, you've got to go up to them and offer them your hand and maintain eye contact and smile. And if they don't take your hand, they're disrespecting you. Are you going to let someone disrespect you? No. So you're going to continue to smile and offer your hand. So I, I remember one guy came in and this five-year-old, he's a bit sticky and gooey, but he put his hand out like this. And the guy sort of looked at him and walked past. And this kid wasn't having it. He was like dodging left and right going, <laughs> and he came up to see me and he said oh, I'm Miss Vart. I said oh, I think you have a young gentleman here who would like to say hello he is our official greeter so I wouldn't talk to him till he'd greeted the child but it's it. just that thing of like kindly and gently and with compassion and with empathy meeting people where they are empathy is, is witness it's getting alongside someone you don't get people mm. on side by slagging them off whether it's Boris Johnson or your Ofsted inspector or your teacher you, you don't it doesn't work and then engage is where you draw them into a conversation by listening and asking really good questions. And then enroll is where you get them to do something different to the, what they did before. But what we do in schools is we want instant enrollment. We want you to be enrolled. You better believe in the delayed gratification of education. Well, I don't even know why I'm here. Everyone I know is on the rob. You don't need history GCSE for that. 
So why am I even doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, but it's this thing of you, you're lucky out. You're lucky to be here. And it's like, no, equally, you're lucky to have me. It, it's a, that's why I'm kind of, if we looked at this as relationships, like even when schools are closed, like here for me, I'm not against exclusion. It, it, sometimes you need to exclude. But what I would like you to do is when you exclude, you commit to three years of sending that kid a message every single week. Postcard, WhatsApp, text message, email. How's it going? I know it didn't work out here, but we are still invested in your success. Hey, mm. what's the new foster placement like? Tell us how that's going on. If you want to ever come back and visit, we'd love we'd love to meet you. Hey, we're doing this trip next week where we're going to be here. If you are free and you can get away, come see us. How's it going at school? You were always really good at this. How's that going? Imagine that. Because what exclusion is, you don't belong. We don't want you here. And I'm, I can't tell you how many times I was told that. And when you are consistently told that, Added to, like, for me, I was homeless as well. On the street, nobody asks your name, nobody looks you in the eye, no one touches you. It strips you of your humanity. So then we can get really judgmental going, oh, look at that person on the rob doing this, doing that. If you're told you don't belong, what are your options? Because identity is up to you. I can identify as a housewife from LA County if I like, but belonging requires agreement. If the housewives of LA County say, you're not one of us, I don't belong. So it's the agreement piece that we're breaking. It's this contract that we're tearing up in front of a young human's face and saying, you're on your own, love. And I'm saying, you need to exclude it, exclude, but that is not where your commitment to that child ends. Otherwise, you're saying, I'm here for you, I'm here for you, I'm here for you until this, and then I'm not here for you. Well, then why should I trust you? If you're going to turn it on and off. I used to, from when I was six, I used to categorize adults when I met them, and I would decide whether I was nice to them or not category one adults loved you they loved you they loved spending time with you that you they were delighted to be with you that was my teachers category two adults um I mean they like you they don't love you but they like you you're they're not going to hurt you that's the flip side but you are a bit of a burden because they've got stuff to do they've got displays to put up they've got marking to do when you speak to them they're like what come on break time come on you know it's like you're just in the way a bit but they're not going to hurt you category three they're either dangerous or idiots or dangerous idiots. And I lived with category three adults. And once you were in a group, very rarely did you move up the bleak tables. <laughs> if you were in category two, you did not make it. Because I, I had to make a snap decision on whether you were a safe adult or not. And I didn't come across many. I'm sure I came across more, but because they were so preoccupied with, right, go on, get this, move, 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 quick, 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 do the, mm. do the. It was like, yeah, you're not safe. And so I was looking for category ones to disclose to and in the end I didn't I found one category one category one but I, I disclosed to three category two adults before I was believed <laughs> so you know wow really I mean, look I'm not this is the gold standard I'm just I'm saying those kids that annoy you now those kids that you wish will spontaneously combust I'm what I am those kids older and literate and articulate so I can, you can ask questions that you would love to know from that sort of child, and I will tell you. And that's really what I'm doing. I'm just saying, you know what? We've all got broccoli in our teeth. Here's yours. Here's what it's like on the other side of you. This is what it's like on the other side of you. And mm-hmm. leaders that can take that on and be reflective and reflexive about that grow quickly. And right. those who, who can't because they're afraid of their own you know, they've got so much on themselves and they're already at breaking point and that and they're we just got to get through the day. That's our highest goal, just get through the day. You know, or already in a position where the job is stealing from them. 
and it's not good enough. Because it's like we're saying to the kids, work hard, do your best. One day you could be just like me, bitter, twisted, knackered, <laughs> hateful, terrified of Ofsted. You never know. Who's is that compelling? It's not compelling. Be better. Be better. Be a waggle. What a good one looks like. You need to be a, a human waggle, not a piece of work. You know. So so it's. I'm just. I'm just notice. I'm pointing out what I've noticed. And I say that, but I'm doing it now. It's not something I certainly didn't do it as a kid. Got into trouble mm. every time I did it as a kid. I remember in history when I asked where all the brown people were and the what, Mrs. Sutton looked at me like I'd accused her of apartheid and slavery all in one. I was kicked out of history. I wasn't allowed to go back for a week. Suited me fine. I loved roaming around the corridors, defacing billboards. But, you know, it's just like, don't. what I learned is don't ask questions. Just put up with it. Yeah, right. And, and so it was this constant building up of distress and pain and frustration. Hello, friends. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to support the Rethinking Education podcast, you can now become a patron of the podcast in return for various benefits. If you visit patreon.com forward slash repod, that's R-E-P-O-D, you can find out more. Alternatively, you can make a one-off donation at buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. The links are in the show notes. I also realise, however, that times are tough. And so if you aren't able to contribute financially, you can support the show in other ways, leaving a lovely glowing five-star review on iTunes, for example, or sharing an episode with a friend or a colleague or sharing a link or some positive energy on social media. All such contributions and nudges, however great or small, are massively appreciated by myself and help to ensure the long-term viability of the podcast. Now let's get back to our fascinating conversation with Jazz and Porfar. There's such a lot, my goodness, in what you just said. I mean... It's incredible, and it and it feels like we're sort of we're we're tipping into the next part of the of the podcast, which is great. So so I often like to talk to the person, and we've heard a lot of your story already, um, in the, even in this conversation. But I really like to get to know the person that I'm speaking to because I often find that that bit is missing from these conversations around education. We don't talk about who we are and the stories of our lives. And and one thing that I'm really interested in is like your educational story, like and, and hearing about these five remarkable individuals, these category one individuals that, that you mentioned earlier. Love to hear about them. And that sort of takes a form of, of another question that I often like to ask when I'm asking people about their story, if you like. And it's about moments of significant learning which was a, a mm. phrase that, as far as I'm aware, was coined by Carl Rogers, the guy who invented person-centered yeah. therapy. And it's basically just like learning that counts, you know, learning that shapes you as a person, learning that changes you in some way, not like, you know, learning a quote from Inspector Calls that you forget five minutes after the after the exam, right? That wouldn't be an example of meaningful learning, but learning, it could be a, a person that you met, like these five people you're talking about, or a conversation that you had, or a book that you came across, for example. So I'm really interested to hear about, and however you want to, however you want to to walk us through this this bit. Um, maybe starting with school, maybe starting with a particular teacher. Where where does this story start for you? Wow. Well, it, I think it's it started in school. It started with um, adults in school. You know, they've all got the potential to be everyday heroes. Every adult. 
Like when I go and do a talk and they say, we've got everybody there. And I'm like, everybody? Have you got the whole school family? Yeah, everybody's there. So you've got the caretaker, you've got the receptionist, you've got the midday supervisors, you've got the governors. Oh, no, no, everybody. Oh, well, then you've got everybody, haven't you? So every reality school. So every I had like a cast of accidental heroes and then everyday heroes. And I think the lesson I learned from Mrs. Cook was bravery because I was terrified of everything. I, I used to wet myself when the fireball went off. And she um, she used to call me up instead of calling me out. She used to talk about how brave I was and reward me for bravery. And she, like, you know, planted this. She painted me in a colour that I didn't own. <laughs> she get, My palette was, like, brown, you know, brown. It was just brown and a bit of grey. She gave me yellow. She gave me a colour that was allowed me to do more beautiful paintings with. So bravery was the biggest thing I picked up from her. Wow. And how old were you when you had Mrs. Cook as a teacher? She, it's like reception year one, year two. Oh, really young. Wow. Mm, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Goodness. Silver Jubilee, 1977, um, Mrs. Cook. And uh, and she, actually later, I say brave because years later when I was six and I'd, um, I was being abused at home, I was the eldest of six. I was looking after my brothers. We were stealing food to eat. I was taking beatings for them. We were, oh, it was, yeah. it was just Oliver Twist. We were like that. Um, but with abusive parents as well. And uh, I ran away from home and school. I was, I we were doing the sex ed lesson and I realised what my stepdad was forcing me to do is how you get pregnant. And uh, I sat in the gym and died, Just died. Because the same, I thought all the teachers knew and it was my fault because the same way they looked at me with this look of disgust and even the things they said, you've let yourself down. That's what my stepdad and my mum said. So I thought they were all in on this and I didn't, I was, you know, I, I was worthless and guilty and cheap and dirty and it was, I was wrong. So I did what any rational person would do when everyone believes that about you. I went, I left and I got picked up by a pimp in the end. I was on the streets for a couple of days and, it, and he'd taken me shopping, get clothes. And I'm standing in this shop holding a dress and uh, I know I'm not safe. I'm 11 years old and I know I'm not safe, but I, I don't know what to do. And then out of nowhere, this, I mean, it's just like, I was on a Methodist church podcast the other day, and I think it might have been divine intervention. That's the word. <laughs> Out of nowhere, everything went quiet, and one clear thought came to mind. And that thought was, there is no way that Mrs. Cook would wear this outfit. Because Mrs. Cook always wore brown, long sleeves, blah, blah. And this was like a lingerie basque type thing. Right. And in that moment, I dropped, I didn't even think, I dropped the dress. I walked straight out the change room, past Jason, into a police station. I handed myself in. I slammed my hands on the counter and said, I demand the right to remain silent because I thought that's what you did <laughs> in police stations. And I found, I, I, I found bravery because it misses Cook, that memory. Of, this is what I'm talking about, you see. The mark of a great leader, of a great teacher, is what happens when you're not in the room anymore. Mm. I have seen her for six years. She saved my life and she wasn't even there. Did you ever have contact with her later on? I did, I did. I went back when I was 18. Um, and I got I dropped out of school um, and I navigated chaos. And then I'd gone to sixth form college and I was on my way to, I wanted to be a teacher. Like she said, I, she said I'd make a great teacher. So I was doing what she said. And I went back to school to find her. And there she was, you know, older, wider, but still in brown, still same clothes. <laughs> and uh, I don't know that she even recognized me, but I was, it was like me and Beyonce. I was trying to say, you saved my life. I couldn't, I, I mean, I couldn't talk. I couldn't talk. 
you know, I love this one. She loves me. She never said it. She didn't need to. It was obvious. And I'm crying and I've got snot in me. I'm just, and she put a hand on my shoulder and she said, are you doing well? And I said, I'm doing so well. I'm doing so, I should be dead and I'm not. And it's because of you. And she kept her hand there. I can't even, she kept her hand there and she said, I am so proud of you. I mean, how do you even? Yeah. How do you even? <laughs> yeah. So I so I, I I remember she gave me the Chanel reading test, tree little milk egg book. But what I remember <laughs> most about her is that she taught me how to be brave. She taught me how to be brave. Mr. Simpson took Mr. Um, uh, Williams taught me about truth. I remember when I I got a black eye and my dad had beaten me up, my stepdad beat me up, and I, I I defied him and went to school. We weren't allowed to go to school when we had bruises. Usually the bruises were on our body, and then we weren't allowed to do PE. But he he'd taken my head and slammed it against a glass table. And it cut underneath my eye and it was, we didn't have mirrors in the house, but the next day when I, cause I was kept in the cellar, the next day I, I was allowed out of the cellar to, Thank you know, goodness. come out. I had a massive mark or just yellow. And my mom's like, you know, I got hit because I got a mark and then like, get to you, you're not going in school, get to you. So I climbed out of the bathroom window and went to school to spite them. I had one of those parkers that you zip the hood up. And it makes an igloo um, from the charity shop. It was actually too small for me. But I, so when I fastened it, I couldn't really, my face was squished and painful. And I got, it wasn't until I got to school and went into the toilet. People were looking at me going, oh my God, what's that me your face? And I went to the toilet and saw it and I just broke, I just cried. And I was already in the naughty kids class. They rounded up all the kids who were, had challenging behavior, gave mm -hmm. it to them on a t-shirt, put them in a different <laughs> class. And our teacher was frequently off because we were constantly giving a nervous breakdown. So I had this supply teacher, Mr. Williams, he was Welsh. And he was just a ball of hair. He was very short, suit, sweaty <laughs> armpits, and hair, a moustache, beard, hair. And he used to shout in this beautiful Welsh lilt, I am absolutely furious. And we'd all be like, <laughs> are you though? You know, and, and anyway, he he saw that, you know, he saw my face and he didn't flinch, didn't shock. He said, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait. When you're ready to talk, I will be here. And he didn't move off his desk. He did the lesson. He kept looking at me, winking, you know, patting the chair next to him. And I was like, wouldn't move. And then at break time, he got a cheese cob out, like cheese bat roll and up, just like cling film. <laughs> and he started unwrapping it and he cut it in half and he put half like on a, on a book next to him with the chair, patted the chair again and just sat there. I was starving. So I went halfway over and he met me halfway. And that's why I said this in my TED talk. That's why he said, what happened to your eye? Are you going to tell me? Are you ready to tell me? I said, I fell. And he said, no, I don't think you did. I think you're protecting someone. And you need to know I'm here to protect you. So when you're ready, you can tell me and I will take care of you. And I, and I, I only said one more thing to him after that. I never saw him again. I said, you know, my stepdad hurt me. He hurts me a lot. And he said, go and get your brother. So I went down the classroom to get Paul. He was in another class. And we he took us to the library and he stood outside the library with like with a rounder's back <laughs> in his hand. And he didn't move until a social worker turned up. I knew she was a social worker because we'd been in and out of foster care by then in like, you know, physical bruises and marks. Every time my mum and dad had a new baby, the midwife came, health visitor came. They could see what we were living in. They could see the way we were treated. They could see we weren't allowed to eat with the parents. And we'd be taken away and they'd do some work with our parents at the family centre. And then we'd come back. And I'm like, why am I being, I love this school. Why am I being punished? 
being put in another family in a horrible school that I don't like, where there's lots of racism, because it was like in Clifton, a nice part of Nottingham. Why, why am I being put? They're the ones doing the wrong. Punish them. Send them away. Let me stay here. Get me some new parents. And uh, and we'd come back and it would be all right for a bit. And then it would start again. And, you know, just on and on. But um, he taught me about telling the truth, mm. not being afraid to tell the truth. And mm. acted on it, right? Yeah. He acted Cost him on his it. job, probably. Cost him his job. What was he going to do with the grounders back? What was his plan? <laughs> I never saw him again. Never came back. I, I, well, I was off school for a while. I was in foster care somewhere else in the city. But yeah, never saw. So I never saw him. And then Mr. Simpson. Wow. What did he teach me, Mr. Simpson? To, uh, I suppose persistence, tenacity, consistency—the power of consistency. Just he would, he would, he'd just show up every day when I was late. So I was taking my brothers and sisters to school, you know, trying to get them out there, house, get them safe. And I'd come in through the late corridor and Mr. Ruler could be shouting at me because I'm late, give me a detention, which was always hilarious. Like, oh, you want to punish me by keeping me in a warm building away from my parents <laughs> who were hurting me for half an hour? Yeah, let's make it a round hour, mate. I don't mind. <laughs> the kids had childcare after school, but not before school. So I was late before school. I could stay as long as you like after. Right. So, um, so I, yeah. So And then Mr. Simpson would be in the late corridor and he'd see me coming. He'd be like, all right, good to see you. And I'd be like, what's wrong with you, you pervert? Don't talk to me. I mean, I just couldn't cope with any kindness being delivered. Mm. And sometimes I'd shout at him, spat at him, kicked him. All that was dealt with. And then the next day, there he is again. Good to see you. I'm like, how are you? Like, how are you so comfortable with yourself? And how are you? How are you? Why do you even care? Why? It was disconfirming data. And it made me physically repulsive. It made me physically sick. I, 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 it was so hard. And yet when someone does that to you every day for five years, it melts the ice that encases your heart. Wow. That's something else. Yeah. Consistency. Julie Archer taught, no, she, she, (laughs) she taught me audacity. Audacity. I failed my A-levels. I got two E's and an N, which stands for nearly an A-level. So two and a half A-levels. I I got one of them. (laughs) It's like, it's not quite, that's what it stands for. So, uh, so I got, I didn't get to go to Hull Uni where I was, I needed three three C's to do, you know, drama. And I remember going to Gillian, having a real go saying, you've lied to me. You told me if I worked on, I was living in a community house then. I was in, out of Fosca, in a community house. You know, I was like living like an adult, uh, you know, and it was hard. It was hard going to college. I could have been signing on and life would have been a lot. It could have been in a gang. Life would have been great. But I stuck at it. And at the end, I've got no grades. So I've got no university. So I've got nowhere to live. So I'm going to be back on the streets again. So I'm fuming. And she says, if you were truly committed, you would ring every university in this country until you got a place. And I'm like, that'll take days. And she said, good, I'm glad you got a plan. And I went back and to spite her, I rang. I started with A and I rang universities. I rang Aberystwyth, couldn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> I, I thought it was France. I'd never left my town. And then I, I called Aberdeen and she said, uh, I said, I've got two E's in there. She goes, two E's, that's amazing. Come for an interview. And I was like, no, no, two E's. Said, oh, no. And I realised that E sounded a bit like A if you're <laughs> Scottish. So I went to B and I phoned a B and I went, hello, I got two E's. And they were like, oh, come for an interview. So I'm like, what am I going to do? What? I put the phone down. I'm like, yes, no. What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? I tend to be Scottish for four years. How's that going to work? <laughs> what about your certificates? So I go to the, I go to the interview because desperation and inspiration are equal drivers towards change. And I was desperate. I had nowhere to live. So I went to a, and I wanted to be a teacher. So I went to the interview 
And uh, the guy, he, who was, he had hair like an horse had been eating it. It was all over like that, like straw. <laughs> and it put, I was like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? And he jumped straight in. He went, oh, I've been waiting for you. Aren't you from this estate? Aren't you from, my cousin used to work there as a youth worker. He says that it's a disadvantage estate. He says the kids, like they don't, they don't finish secondary. All the girls are pregnant by the time they're 13. How are you here? I said, let me tell you a story. And I told him about the teachers and the difference they'd make. And I said, that's why I'm here. And if you let me through, that's what I will do. Not just for the kids who are under-resourced and previously underestimated, but for every child, I will fight for their highest good. And I will support and challenge and champion and, 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 and encourage our system to be the best it can be for the kids in it. So no one has to feel like I feel again. That's what I will do. And he said, if you promise to be more authentic, I promise to get you a place at this uni. And I didn't know what authentic meant. So I was like, yeah, fine. And then I looked it up when I got home. I was like, hell no, I'm not telling him. <laughs> but um. But that's how I got into uni, you know, and I know that I'm not saying you should lie, but I also don't think pretending to be Scottish is lying. I think it's aspirational. <laughs> um, so which uni was it beginning with a B, did you say? Bishop Grosteth College and then Hull University. Oh, right. Amazing. That's where I did my teacher training degree. Oh, my goodness. And that was hard. I mean, I spent the first two years sleeping rough. I, d- I didn't have anywhere to live, so I'd left the community house. And uh, there's no housing benefit then for students, so I... I was too ashamed to tell anybody. I, I did go to college and I did. I went to Rich, Richard's Hair, we used to call him, Richard Eyre, the pastoral priest of college. I don't know what he was. And I said, I need, I want to stay in my room over Christmas. He said, no, not possible. We, we vacate the rooms. I'm like, are you renting them out? He's like, well, no, no, not all. I said, right, I need to stay in my room. He's like, no, you, you can't. We don't do that. I'm like, well, I've got nowhere to go. And he's like, you go home. So I did. I packed my stuff up in two black plastic bags told everyone I was going skiing with my parents and my brother Tarquin, which I don't have. <laughs> and then I went to Nottingham and I slept in the doorway of the social services, um, the department of DSS it was at the time. And they gave me an emergency payment of £10, which was the exact cost of a hostel. And then I sofa surfed, got off with guys so I could have somewhere to stay, slept in doorways. And I did that until term started again in January. And then I did it again at Easter and I did it again at Christmas. And I... Did it for two years until I got a, in the third year, I got a um, house where a landlady lived and she let me stay in the holidays. And it was the first time I'd had somewhere to be. Because every holiday I'm like, there's no way I'm going to make it through. How am I going to make it through? I've got nothing to eat, nowhere to sleep. How am I going to do it? <sighs> Kindness of strangers, you know? Mm, it's phenomenal. So, so so have we had four or was the That's fifth four. one? Mr. Mr. Redman. Mr. Redmond, go on. He taught me compassion in a huge way. So we did at at college, we did alternative history, (laughs) which was basically the unwhitewashing of the curriculum. So at college was where I first heard about Mary Seacole, Harriet Tubman. At college was when I first realised Egyptians weren't white. I'm like, Egypt, hold on. Books I saw at junior school, they're slightly yellow, like Elizabeth. Was Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in the Cleopatra? <laughs> a mini? I'm Egyptian then. I'm going to be Egyptian. Because I didn't know my family. I didn't know where I was from. I was always with white foster carers. So um, so we it was just taught. And he taught me this idea that you could be compassionate towards yourself and others. And, and you could tell a story with compassion. You could meet people with empathy. And it, it changed everything because I was angry. With good reason. Yeah, right. I was angry. I was I was hurting others, hurting myself. I was you know, angry. And in my first year of university, it was the last time I wanted to die. And when it I remember when I didn't die, 
I remember saying, if I'm going to be on this planet, there's going to be some effing changes around here. Because I felt like I'd compromised myself to the point where I couldn't compromise anymore. I was flat Stanley. Like I'd literally compromised myself to nothingness and there was no further I could go. I couldn't even die properly. So if I'm going to be here, and let's face it, it's not my choice, everyone is going to have to move up because I am no longer going to make okay for you to, for me to be wrong. And it, it was, and it took, still took 20 years of a journey, healing and therapy and coaching and all the stuff I did. It still took 20 years, but it was, it was a real shift in terms of compassion for yourself. Cause I had very high drive, very high threat, but self-compassion and compassion for all it just went out the window. And so until, what was it, until Mr. what was it that he did or said that unlocked it? Human first, mate. He just met people where they were. Human first, professional second. So he would have a conversation with you that was pouring with witness and agency and humanity and belief and a calibration of support and challenge. There's none of this, do it all for you. I'll protect you and you get entitled. And there was also none of this, I'm going to challenge you to the point where you don't know what you're going to do. I wrote a play at the end of, would it have been my third year, fourth year? I wrote a play called Stolen. And it was about, I didn't say it was about me, but it was about a childhood being stolen through sexual abuse. So I wrote this play. And um, I went into the dinner hall, as we used to do, to like announce this play. And I was quite angry. And I said, because I was surrounded by middle class, well, I was the only brown people at my college, the only brown person there. There was one other in the fourth year when I was a first year, and I was constantly told off for missing the teaching practice bus, even though it was her. To be fair, we both had two eyes, two breasts, and a, a nose, so we're very easy confused. But so, so I was I was surrounded by people who were, you know, white and middle class, and and had a great family and were looked after, and didn't have my experience. So I was ashamed. And so I'd done this play. I never said I don't say it was me, but I'd done this play, and people had come to me and disclosed. I'd worked with a centre for sexual abuse survivors. And I'd, I'd, you know, made a lot of kind of like discoveries. And I went in and shouted in the dinner hall, you should come and see this play because the statistics are that one in whatever in your class are going to have some form of a wanted sexual contact before they're 16. This is important. You should come. And, um, and so I did this play and, you know, it, it was, I did it three times. I had to put on two extra performances. And Jeff Redman was stood at the back um, next to Gwyn, who my friend who did the lights, who stood at the back, and the, I did the, so much of it was autobiographical, but I no one knew it was me apart from me and a couple of the cast, and um, and he just stood at the back at the end, and everyone was silent, right? No one said anything; they were all just like, and he just started clapping, these massive claps with this big grin on his face. It was it was that ability to stand in the fire, the chaotic fire that was my life. He'd just stand there with you and do witness. And after that, I had letters from like tutors disclosing stuff and saying this was a triumph and, and I had other And it was like the first time that I'd treated myself with kindness, let alone anyone else. It was the mm. beginning of this journey of being human first and professional second, of meeting people where they are, of empathy, engage and role. Jeff, Jeff Redman, I owe him everything I am and everything I have. Because I would not be here. I would not be alive if I hadn't learned uh, that lesson from him. Isn't that mm. amazing? Compassion is the key. As you say, it was the start of a long journey for you. Mm. It was not like a, a Damascene conversion, but, you know, it was like compassion is the key, would you say, that unlocks 
the unfolding that sort of ended up. Yeah, it's, it's how I managed to forgive myself and forgive my parents. You know, it's like they were living rent free in my head the whole time, telling me, you know, you're shit and you know you are. So, <clears throat> you know, forgiving them was like a weight off my shoulders. You know, in a way that my brothers and sister never did, never got to that point, haven't yet got to that point. Mm. But um, but for me, it was like, nah, you don't get to hang out with me. You don't get to. In fact, I went to see my stepdad and my mum. Um, when I started going out with my husband, he's like six foot two, big black man, lovely bottom. So he's frightening. <laughs> uh, although he's, I'm more likely to punch you than he is, which is hilarious. But everyone always thinks he's, he's the big bad wolf and I'm little Miss Cute, which is hilarious. Anyway, so I went to see them and they weren't at home. And I went into a pub because I knew they'd be there. We lived in pubs. And um, and my stepdad was saw me and he's, he flashed anger and then he flashed fear. You get really good at reading people if you grow up with an abuser. You know, right. I used to think I was psychic because I can tell when people are saying one thing or feeling something else. So he flashed this, and then uh, he started to get up. He said, "I, I don't listen. I don't have to listen to you." And um, something inside me just snapped, and I became this—the epitome of everything I didn't want to be. And I walked up to him and I said, "You sit down. I will tell everyone in this pub that you're a paedophile." And he just what he went white and he sat down and I, and I stood looking over him and I realized in that moment I'd become him and he'd become me and here I was this perpetrator using fear to threaten someone who was short and old and weak and I'm like no you don't get to win you don't get to win I am not going to be you no I'm going to sit here and I'm going to forgive you that's what's going to happen because this is my story you don't get to write the story. It's mine. So that's what I did. And it's liberating. It's liberating. Nadia Bowles-Weber, I mentioned earlier, she wrote a book, <laughs> Why You Should Forgive Assholes. <laughs> In myself, I'm an asshole as well, you know. But why forgiving assholes? It's got nothing to do with the asshole, and it's got everything to do with you. It's got everything to do with me. I Purely out of selfishness. Because I, I, I don't, I want to write my own story. Wow. So, yeah. That's unbelievably powerful, Jazz. Mm. Incredible. I've nearly cried about five times in this conversation. I mean, so, so right. We've got. I, I want to let you go because we've got about ten, you've got about ten minutes before you need to get yourself ready for your next call. Um, we're going to do another quick fire round right. to round up, and this is three questions. What are we getting right currently? Thinking about the journey that you've been on, right, and thinking in particular, I think about other kids who are in similarly like harrowing, difficult, challenging circumstances that is often below the radar, it's off the radar, teachers often can't see it. Like when I was a teacher, we were actively discouraged from looking up the, the, the file, the case files on, on kids, unless we had like very specific reasons to be concerned about them. It was just like, you're the science teacher. This is not about human first stuff. It was sort of act actively discouraged mm. that distancing was sort of enforced. Yeah, and it seems like that's not smart. So, so, so anyway, so, so thinking about uh, like positives, what what do we get right currently uh, as a, as an education system? Secondly, what do you think is the major challenge that we need to overcome? And thirdly, how how can we fix that challenge? Ah, mm. oh, easy so. questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what are we doing right? I am the product of what happens when a system fails, but individuals stand. That's what we're doing right. 
We are asking courageous questions, not difficult questions. We're not having difficult conversations. We're having courageous conversations. Like the government at the minute seem, seems to be promoting zero tolerance at the same time as restorative justice. We're kind of opposed. So right. this, is a, this is a great time for us to actually ask questions. Like I've been on the same bill at conferences as Tom Bennett. And that's, that's brilliant. Apart from the fact that he's a lovely person. Every time he gets to go, I'm like, this is great because you're going to have different views and you get to ask questions and you get to be curious. So that is what we're doing right. It's people who are no longer letting fear drive their bus. And I think COVID is a large proponent to that. Um, uh, and the lockdown and that, that misnomer of schools being closed when they're actually working four times harder than everyone else. Um, so I, so I, I think what we're getting right is that we ask questions. We're like, especially new teachers, like Gen Z in the workplace. Come on. We're just, they are our, they are literally our saving grace. This generational diversity we're going to have in, in, where are we now? Five years, 10 years time of like five generations in the workplace. Come on. Gen Z are going to be like, um, but why? <laughs> Surely there's a better way. So I'm, I'm, I think we're getting that right. I think we're getting curiosity right. Swapping fear for curiosity. Mm, I I can see that, and and I feel very encouraged by the the amount of sort of, of animation that has grown up around this podcast. And last week, last year, we had a, a conference which um, we spoke about at the time. Unfortunately, you couldn't make it along to that one, could you? I'll get you next time. Mm. Um, <laughs> but um, but people really want to take part in this conversation. They're like, this this is about you know we need to change and it, and to talk about swag, right? A seriously audacious uh, wild goal not quite in the right order like changing the education system is a ludicrous thing goal to have oh it's great revolution but, that's what i yeah, want right. and, and politics is next <laughs> well, that'll, that'll be our next conversation here's, here's the beautiful thing about politics it doesn't actually matter i mean people have said why aren't you running for education i'll tell you why because i'd do a john prescott in the first hour i would not someone i have not got <laughs> the patience to work in politics but also, I want to be where the action is. I want to be where people can actually make a change. And that is not in the halls of Westminster. That's in the classroom. Yeah. That, so that agency, that's another thing we're getting right. Teach meets, um, Twitter, edu Twitter. Mm. It's interesting to be having those conversations on there. Swapping Absolutely. fear for curiosity. That's what we're getting right. All right. Thank you. So curiosity is number one and asking questions. Number two was, um, what, what's the major challenge, do you think, that we face currently? What we're we not getting right. It's the disconnect between remaining connected to your purpose and you know ticking the boxes, getting it right, avoiding getting into trouble. It's the disconnect. It, it's like you take a, a good person and you say, you know, you know, don't smile till Christmas, <laughs> which is to protect the good person. But teaching starts with R. It's about relationships. You are going to get hurt. You are going to cry. It, the, you're with people. If you're working with flipping chimps in a zoo, you'd be upset because they're quite cute and they look human sometimes. Y of course, you're going to, it's a relationship. It's going to hurt. It, it's not, the idea isn't to avoid hurt. The idea is what boundaries do we have? How do we show up personally? How do we become professionally vulnerable and personally authentic at the same time? Not personally vulnerable. That's like you're a hot mess. You should go and get some help. <laughs> Professionally vulnerable and personally offended. How do we be a walking waggle? And while we're squeezing it into success means a lack of humanity and more professionalism. And, and also, like infant school rules are kind of like all major religions kind of have the same, you know, 
be nice to each other. You know, don't be a dick. It's it's just it's basic stuff. It's not odd. It's the it's the infant school classroom rules, right? That's that's what we do. And then when you look out, like when Brexit was happening, and there were schools that say, "Don't discuss Brexit with the kids." Well, that's not very nice. I mean, that's like saying <laughs> don't talk about sex education. They're going to talk about stuff, and they're going to get misinformed. They're going to get, you know, kissing leads to pregnancy, and then they're going to be worried about kissing someone again. You, you, you are a, a human who has navigated life a bit. The kind and least thing you can do is to engage with children. You don't have to give them your point of view. Let them join join the conversation. You know, and I think that's the thing. You've got kind of politics acting out a different story, and we're afraid. So we're squished into these tiny boxes of fear the whole time. I think it comes back to fear again. That's what we're, that's what the challenge is. It's being 10% braver than you were last year. Mm, I, I totally agree. I wrote a book called Fear is the Mind Killer for the same thing. And it was talking yeah. about that on the kids level, but also on the school leadership level. Mm. So the third question is, how do you bridge that disconnect then? How do you help people to connect to enact their moral purpose in, in the decisions that they're making on a day-to-day basis. What does that look like? Withness. It looks like withness. It, it's like during COVID, I heard about one school who I'd worked with who brought in, they sent an email and it said enforced yoga, Thursdays, 12.30. Enforced yoga. They even called it that. Now, this is coming from a beautiful place of wanting to help people with their mental health and well-being. But if you are forcing someone to do yoga <laughs> with their camera, are you really helping? <laughs> but it's just this like blinkered, we have to do this. And force you. If we if we are able to show up and say, like when I when I take over as leading anything, I say to people, here's the deal. Let me tell you about this time when I totally screwed up as a leader. And uh, you know. Like like in Hamilton, when I was your age, I watched all my men die and go over the top. It's like, well, that's encouraging, isn't it, as a leadership talk? <laughs> but I'm like, here's all the ways I've, I've failed. Um, here's one of the worst ways. Here's how I felt. Here's what the fear that took over. Here's how I, here's how I behaved as a result of that. And who I want to be as a leader is not someone who causes you to live in that way. Who I want to be a leader is someone who, you know, come to me, Come to me with like three possible solutions to the problem you're in and I'll help you choose the best one, you know, but come to me as a human and I will come to you as a human. Mm. And, and, and the other thing that leaders should be doing in school is at half three on a Friday, getting their coat on and going, so long suckers, I've got a life. <laughs> not banging on about well-being and then sending emails at half 11 at night. It's not the same. Right. So it, it starts on an individual way. It's like me and my house. We're going to do it like this. It's It starts by individuals showing up, standing in the chaotic fire that is each other's lives and doing witness. I saw Patrick Otley Connor do a workshop once and he, he was talking to leaders and he said, how many of you know how many of your staff are accessing food banks? And there's this really uncomfortable pause as people sort of like kind of went through cycled through well no one well I don't know or maybe oh no I don't you know and it's like it's not like you should do a poll but if someone is accessing a food bank they don't have provision they don't have what they need and you're asking them to show up at school and then give to others without checking that they've got what they need first we're just recreating it's like my mate who went to public school private school and was abused and then sent his son there because and I quote it never did me any harm Whereas I said to him, oh, you know, if, if you were a her and then you sent your kid there, it did in fact do you some harm. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
slow, slow your roll, honey, and let's think about it. But it's like we just constantly keep perpetuating the same thing again and again. Well, what if we didn't? We can't change. What would it look like if we could? What would it look like if we could? And the challenge is engaging in that conversation, which is why I am open to conversation. I regularly do 30-minute courageous conversations. Anyone can just message me on Twitter and say, I want to talk about this. I'm like, let's do it. You know, that that's that's where I live <laughs> the whole time. So I think I think it's that. I think that the challenge is is seeing people as humans, seeing leaders as humans, seeing teachers, seeing TAs, seeing humans, and stop mm-hmm. this othering. Stop calling TAs by their first name and teachers by their last name. What is the matter with you? You're an adult in school. The kids assume that you're a, there to help. We put distinctions on. Stop doing yeah. it. I, I mean, how many times I've been in school, infant schools, we've got pink, blue bo- um, boxes for books and, and blue boxes for books, and the boys put it in the pink, and let's line the boys and girls up. So come on, guys, let's just have a think about what we're doing here. What are we saying? What is it like on the other side of you? That's the challenge. Get the broccoli out of your teeth. <laughs> Leaders can say to their team, write down the unwritten rules of this workplace. Write down the unwritten rules. The things I've never said, but you know is a rule. And then collect them in and lock yourself in because you're going to cry. There'll be people saying, oh, you can't leave before this time. You've never said that, but it's what people believe. Because we are accidental rather than intentional. Being intentional is exhausting, but it's also liberating. Showing mm. up and, and Forrest Gumping, you know that film where Forrest Gump just like makes decisions and it happens to turn out all right. We expect to be Forrest Gump, but that was a film in <laughs> <the> real life. <laughs> you can't just bumble your way through and everything goes away. So this, this expectation instead of hope, intentionality instead of, you know, automatic. Mm. That's the challenge. And, I, and, and it's only a challenge because we haven't all drunk the Kool-Aid yet, but the ones, the ones who have, get yourself on Twitter. 10% of educators are on Twitter. But they're the ones asking the courageous questions. And some of them are idiots. And they, they, you know, they're getting, they're being hurt at school and at home. And then they go to Twitter to hurt because everyone's hurting them. Hey, no mind. Hey, no mind. You don't have to get involved. Mm-hmm. Just find a community of like-minded people and ask more questions. Thank you. I love it. So witness is the is the the I love the clarity of the of your vision. It's like it boils down very simply to connection, doesn't it? To human connection, to mm. relationships, to being with people and standing with them in the fire of their lives, as you say. Mm. That was beautiful. And I will I would very much like to continue uh speaking with you, Jazz. I feel like I have an enormous amount that I can learn from you. But for now, um I want to be respectful of your time. I know that you've got another call coming up. Yeah. Um I really enjoyed that. I think that you are a waggle, if ever there was one. <laughs> and, uh, right. and I look forward to the next time we uh, our, our paths cross. And keep up, keep up the good work. You are a positive disruptor just in showing up for this. And you, you, you fire synapses off in people's minds that wouldn't happen because they're so busy doing the day. There's a real gift in stepping out and calling people up instead of out. So don't underestimate mm-hmm. the power of what you're doing. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. Mm. Thank you. All right. Cheers, Jazz. Take care. Time's a measure of
Don't try.